1: how are you dealing with inflation and then why your work matters to god you're listening to the common good happy thursday friends welcome to the common good here on am 1160 hope for your life my name is brian Fromm. so glad to have you with us on this thursday afternoon a beautiful day, well, rainy day, but warm, warm day out here in the Chicagoland area, a little overcast, but uh, hey, we'll take it. Middle of February, we'll take it. My kids are going on our, our church's winter retreat this weekend. This is kind of winter retreat season, and they actually, uh, my younger two, went on a retreat with a different church a couple weeks ago. They're going to the same place up in Wisconsin a couple weeks ago. Full of snow, full of ice, doing all the snow stuff. Uh, it was like when it was, you know, zero or the wind chill was below zero. This week, 40 degrees, no snow, no ice, mud. So, It's just what we get out here, apparently, in the Midwest now. So we hope that you are enjoying your Thursday afternoon. Glad that you are with us. I want to start with some food news, a couple different tidbits that I saw on the Internet about food. And the first one is, uh, and this one uh, is going to be, uh, this is something people feel strongly about, myself included. Where is the best pizza? OK, where is the best pizza Over Fox News? This article just says this. This may be the home to America's newest favorite pizza. Check it out. A new city's specialty style is on the rise and it may surprise a lot of people. So I grew up in on the East Coast. I grew up in New Jersey, right? And uh, moved out to Chicago to go to college. And I've lived in Chicago for the last 25 years or so. So grew up in New Jersey in the suburbs of New York city. I basically grew up in North Jersey. So the suburbs of, of New York city and now live in the suburbs of Chicago. So I feel like I have a sense of both of these two major cities and kind of what makes them tick. And they, they both have played a role in my life. And when you tell somebody you're from the East coast, one of the first arguments people from Chicago want to make is about pizza. Whether it be, uh, you know, Chicago style, particularly deep dish pizza versus when you go to New York uh, or the New York area, you get the big triangle, thin, uh, full of grease kind of pizza. You've all had New York style pizza. Now don't, please don't fool that with like Sparrow, uh, but like authentic New York style pizza. I found a place in West Chicago out here out in my area that uh, a guy who who's from New Jersey who started a New Jersey kind of pizzeria and I go in there and I feel like I'm back home, right? But then you get people who are uh, in Chicago who are like, this is the best. No, you cannot even, it doesn't even compare either the thin crust here in Chicago where you cut it in squares, which I, I enjoy, or more so the deep dish pizza that is wonderful, but also kind of strange. And then people kind of subset that with their favorite ones, right? My wife, you know, her love language is Lou Malnati's pizza, whereas I would probably lean towards a Giordano's deep dish or something like that. So New York people, Chicago people, we argue about pizza, but here's something we cannot argue about. This article says... Uh, move over Chicago and New York, a new city specialty style is on the rise in the U.S., and that is Detroit. Ahead of National Pizza Day, which is tomorrow, here's a quick primer on the history of Detroit-style pizza and why it's growing in popularity. For those unfamiliar, Detroit-style pizza is square pie that is a crunchier crust than New York. It says that it's influenced by the Sicilian-style pizza. It consistently impresses pizza lovers due to its unique layering structure. Uh, Unlike a more standard pizza where sauce is covered by cheese and then toppings, Detroit-style is the opposite. The pepperoni is placed directly on the dough, kind of allowing the flavors to go into the crust and so on and so on. Instead of a more typical mozzarella-parmesan blend, Detroit style uses Wisconsin brick cheese on top of its pepperoni. All right. I'm looking at pictures of Detroit style pizza. Fine. All it's good. It's good. But there is no chance that Detroit style pizza is better than New York style pizza or even Chicago style pizza pizza there's no, you look at it and there's no chance. It quite frankly, looks like the pizza we got in the cafeteria when I was growing up. So wanted to start there. There is no, it looks good. I'm all for it. Not a chance in the world that it's unseating either New York or Chicago. No way. All right. Second uh, food related topic. Reading this at NBC news, fast foodies, are getting fed up with the price hikes at the drive-through," says McDonald's, is vowing to focus more on affordability after it joined a handful of major restaurant brands seeing consumers balk at pricier items. One thing I learned in this article is that um, different restaurants, like different McDonald's throughout the country, they can uh, franchisees can kind of set their own price, but food companies have been passing along higher labor and ingredient costs to consumers. Long after inflation peaked in June of 2022, and diners are now getting fed up, uh, specifically with their fast food ones, where they want to uh, go there for the price. Like, Why do you go to McDonald's? Because it's cheap, right? And now sales are showing the issue. McDonald's reported underwhelming results in its fourth quarter, and Yum! Brands, which include KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut, showed weaker than expected growth in its top brands. Fast food executives are taking note. McDonald's CEO told analysts Monday that consumers are becoming more discriminating with their dollars. And he promised the company would, uh, would go towards affordability. He noted that consumers earning $45,000 or less annually are favoring cheaper groceries over Mickey D's, opting to cook their own meals at home because eating at home has become more affordable. Common grocery items have begun falling in price a little bit. Most of us know that if you go to the grocery store, it's still a bit shocking. But here, listen to this. Long known for its dollar menu, McDonald's has recently uh, shown online uh, they've been pillared online for a, con- a Connecticut McDonald's in which the Big Mac combo meal was $18 and the Egg McMuffin was 7 Now, McDonald's told NBC News that pricing is up to franchisees and can vary by location, but that the company strives to strike a balance. They've looked for ways to attract customers, but in the end, McDonald's and these other people are realizing they've got to stay really, really, really cheap. They got to stay cheap, no matter what it's costing them to make, because people are not going to go to McDonald's and spend close to $20 on a Big Mac or $7 on an Egg McMuffin. But it reminds us that inflation continues to be an issue. Uh, Higher prices at the grocery store, at the gas pump, at McDonald's are issues for us. And I I do want to ask, what do we do? Like, how are you doing with that? Like, that's where I wanted to start today. Just how are you doing with that higher sticker shock so many of us have less if the pie of our of our income hasn't grown that much it's just less ways to slice that pie right now and that's really scary there's a lot of us myself included who feel the real pinch of of higher prices, whether it be a McDonald's or whether it be the grocery store, the gas pump or whatever else it might be. Let me just remind you, right? We're a show here that is that is primarily trying to point people to Jesus. Let me remind you that that anxiety around money is a real deal, but that God says, I will be with you. Always cast all your anxiety upon him, and also that when it comes to money, that our contentment is not found in our money. Our contentment is found in who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and let me encourage you with that, and then maybe cook some more meals at home. I know that's not necessarily cheap right now, but... Compared to going out and doing other things, uh, it appears to be the better option. So, two takeaways as we start the show. There's no way in the world Detroit pizza is better than New York or Chicago. No way in the world. And two, don't spend $18 on a Big Mac. Figure it out, Uh, cook it home, do whatever it is you need to do. Uh, But cast your anxieties, your financial anxieties upon God because he cares for you. I want to talk about work. I want to talk about this job that uh, either you go to, uh, maybe you're back in the office or many of you post-COVID. First of all, saying post-COVID, do we still say post-COVID? We're four years out almost from the start of the COVID uh, pandemic, but a lot of us post-COVID Your job is more flexible, working from home, working from the basement, working from the home office, whatever it might be. But regardless of where you work from, work takes up a lot of our time. Our jobs take up a lot of our time, a lot of our energy, a lot of our focus. And something the church has done very poorly, in my opinion, of over the years is this differentiation Uh, between work and church work and play work and worship work work is its own thing even though we know scripturally everything we do is is interconnected and god cares about it matters to god right it says uh, what's the verse I'm doing off the top of my head, but uh, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Everything is worship. And because of that, your work matters, not only to your bottom line and your paycheck, not only to your time, but your work matters to God. And this article of Christianity Today d- dives into that. It says work matters to God because we matter. The creation mandate fills a hole in the faith and work movement. He says, if one were to summarize the underlying thesis of the contemporary faith and work movement in a single sentence, it would likely be your work matters to God. So why does your work matter to God? This author says, our work matters to God because all, and he put that in italics, all of the created order belongs to Christ. And we find in the creation account, not just the anthropological truths that matter to this subject, namely that mankind is an image bearer of God, but the ontological truth as well. Our very being is connected to our pre-fall mandate to be the workers and cultivators of God's condition, right? So this foundational appeal to a theology of work requires a pre-fall understanding of work and purpose, and then a post-fall application. He says, some people imagine the state of glory around God's throne as though all labor will have ended. This is so important. Uh, To taste heavenly bliss in pleasant idleness. He's quoting Abraham Kuyper here. These people know neither God nor his angels nor life as it will be In heaven, human beings being as image bearers of God created with an incomprehensible capacity, right? For productivity and creativity, demonstrate the lordship of Christ, even in a fallen world and participate in the glorious redemption process as our earthly endeavors build God's kingdom business by business. So, he goes on to say a declining view of work in the culture at large has managed to portray work as a meaningful contributor to stress, anxiety, uh isolation, desolation, uh humanistic assumptions uh, have given birth to the idea that standard market professions, often blue collar or not requiring some sort of postgraduate MDiv degree, are less than contributing to Uh, This dissatisfaction, this separation of work and worship, work and my faith. The faith and work movement promises to be kind of an antidote to this negative feedback loop, right? A high view of work negates the need to succumb to the thinking of a dead end job and avoids the temptation to exit the workforce altogether. Like you hear this a lot from people. That's, um, you know, I wish I could have a quote unquote ministry job. Or, yeah, I go to work for 50 hours a week, but then in my off time, I quote unquote do ministry. But that's that misses the point as to. Uh, so, at our church, we often will use this phrase that we long to be everyday missionaries. Wherever we live, work, and play, and one of those words is work. That we view um, our work because we spend so much time there, so much energy, so much focus. That we view work as a mission field. Does that mean that I'm standing up in your in in my cubicle proclaiming the gospel? N- not necessarily. Does that mean I have to start a Bible study in my office? Not necessarily but what it means is i work with integrity and character as unto the lord that i work uh, in a way that points people to jesus the same way in the places that i play right that i coach youth teams or i uh, when i'm on the the basketball court or when i'm uh, at the at the gym or at the playground with my kids when they are younger i do it as unto the lord when i'm with my family it's an act of worship. So regardless of what you do, whether you're a teacher, you're a plumber, you're a banker, whatever it is, that list goes on forever. Do you believe that your work matters to God? Not even because of what it can achieve, but do you believe your work matters to God because we matter? Do you believe your work matters to God? He goes on to say later, the message that our work matters to God is accurate, but the implication that this is true to the extent it leads to corner office success is exclusionary and worst of all, theologically lacking. The world and all too often the church struggle to give purpose to the workforce because the very foundation of the message that our work matters to God is flawed or incomplete. Like this doesn't even mean your work matters to God so that you're, so you're going to be successful. He says, he ends this way. uh, The foolishness of the world's message is that work matters to the extent that it builds status, which leads to a high population of those dissatisfied with how much status is hard to come by. The message for the 21st century faith and work movement must be that work matters not because of your status, but because the worker matters you have been created in the image of god with specific um gifts and talents and um that's why your work matters it's not just the missionaries and the pastors and uh, you know the teachers at a christian school or whatever other ministry jobs we can think of they don't have like the eternal work that matters more than your nine to five job at the office. Our faith is a 24-7 endeavor, wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play, and we we represent Jesus to our work. We work hard, we work with integrity, We love our neighbors, not just at home, our physical neighbors, but our our cubicle neighbors or our office neighbors. We love them the way Christ has called us to love our neighbors. Do you believe that your work matters? It truly does. And so we treat our work as worship. And that transforms the way that we view our jobs and our roles that we take every day. Your work matters. It is worship, may we treat it that way. If you've listened to this show at all, you know that uh being a radio host is kind of my side gig. I've been a pastor for in various varieties for the past 20 to 25 years and I love the church. Like I've in I've given my 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 employment years to pastoring a church. And that's why it's so hard sometimes to see that the people who are bringing the greatest amount of confusion and quite frankly, heresy are pastors. Uh, And I use that air quote that there are not all churches are created equal in what they are saying. And what they believe and that there are many, many churches and many of them declining that are that are spewing stuff that is uh, really dangerous. And I want to play – the danger is in me playing this, but I also want to do so to highlight the need for the church – to not just gather as a church but to also be grounded in its beliefs They're orthodox beliefs that have been handed down through the generations right it doesn't mean that we don't question and we don't discuss and we don't do but there is a um a strain of thought within churches that is so far from the groundings of what we would see in the Bible, and so far from the groundings of what we would call traditional orthodoxy, that it does much more danger than good. These churches would be better off not being around because of the confusion that they bring. Let me give you an example. This was, uh, where did I, which place did I see this? Oh, uh, it, it's a, it's a, uh, twitter site called uh, protestia protestia and it literally says cataloging theological mischief makers okay so they put up a video clip uh from this past sunday or the sunday before of a sermon of a older gentleman named pastor hank at saint barabbas episcopal church in delaware and uh he looks smart enough and he's in his robe and uh you know, got guys sitting behind him. Like, he, looks like he's giving an Episcopal. So, it looks like you're run-of-the-mill Episcopal church. And I want you to hear what he says. Try to pick out what, what you, what makes you go, huh? I don't really feel like that's orthodoxy. That that's the faith. All right. So let's listen to about a minute and a half of this.
2: All numerous, our new religions all begin with someone's experience of God or the absolute. Remember, God is just a name that we have stuck on whatever the heck it is that the supreme being, or maybe it's not a supreme being, is. Some people call it the absolute. Pick your name. So you have an experience. Then you try to translate it and explain to somebody, this is who it is, what it is. That's where we get lost. In monotheism is not absolute reality. It's a story about God that says, this is what we think God looks like, a single supreme being. It's the old patriarch up in the cloud image, right? Just a story, a metaphor. Because there are other stories and metaphors. If you haven't thought about that, you know, it's probably time all over the world. Our Bible is a library of stories written over several hundred years by multiple authors, most of which could be prefaced with once upon a time for a proper sense of context. Other religions have other scriptures. Theology is abstract stories. Theology is really mostly left brain spin. It's not absolute inward reality. The brain just sort of takes off and, you know, says, oh, I wonder if it's this. And says, yeah, all right, I think we'll do that. And then other people start believing it. Examples, these are all three related. Original sin, Jesus as the only son of God, exclusively, and atonement theology. All abstract left brain spin.
1: I mean, he said a lot of stuff. He calls scripture all scripture myth, and that all the, it's just a collection of stories that should begin at once upon a time. So he's called into question the the nature of scripture. He attacked monotheism, kind of. Hey, this is how all religions start. He called into question the atonement. Uh, He called into question the very idea of Jesus being God's only son. And he basically painted a picture that religion is just this kind of made up construct. And if I could just um, summarize his direction and what he said, it would be this. All of this is just man-made. And and the, the first thing that I would say is, wh- then what's his draw to it? Why is he a pastor? If he holds such a low view of not only scripture, but of Jesus and of truth, I I would love to sit down with this guy and like, walk me through why you're a pastor. And the danger in this is he's give if you could see the video, he's giving the sermon and right behind them, uh, they're about to take communion. And you're like, okay, like what's the picture? Then, then what is communion for you? What is happening when you go to the Lord's table? What are you celebrating and remembering there? And the biggest thing that this did for me in watching this is to go, oh, my gosh, like we can point fingers at this guy or this church. and But the biggest thing it does for me as a pastor is to make me look in the mirror and go, uh, am I preaching and teaching uh, orthodox traditional Christian belief that's been handed down through – the generations am i do i hold in our church do we hold a high view of scripture am i giving an accurate picture of who scripture says that jesus is or am i causing confusion you if you went to pastor hanks church there's no way you don't leave there confused and Going, well, religion is just a fairy tale made to make me feel good. Is that what you believe? What do you believe about the Bible? Who do you believe that Jesus is? What does your church say? Like, friends, there are some dividing lines. I think we put up too many of them and we put up the wrong ones, but there are definitive dividing lines that I would say makes a church a church. At the top of that list is who is Jesus? And this guy's like, Jesus is not God's only son. What did he do when he went to the cross? What is the Bible? Now there are debates about what, how the Bible came together, what exact, how, how we are to interpret it. But is it up for debate that it is the word of God? Like, what's the purpose of church? If this is what churches are teaching now, then, then, we have no shot because the the rot is coming from the inside. It's the old horror movie, right? Like uh <laughs> the <laughs> the villain is inside the house. The call is coming from inside the house. Like when you listen to this, this should cause huge red flags in your brain to go off. Big sirens to go off. But it's easy to point the finger, friends. I need to look at my own theology, my own church's theology and go, are we confusing people? Are we are we teaching what this this biblical truth that, yes, we wrestle with the gray areas and we, we point people that, that not everything's perfectly black and white. But what about for the majors, for the foundation, for the things that it's all built upon? This guy's church is built upon nothing. What about your life? What about your church? Well, one of the goals that we have here uh, on the common good is to increasingly let you get to know local pastors. And the guy that I'm going to talk to now, very local to me. We're kind of in the same general area. Uh, his name is Pastor Kyle Isabelli over at Avenue Christian Church in Clarendon Hills. Kyle, how you doing, man?
3: I'm good, Brian. How are you? Thanks for having me today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm great. Yeah, we're we're right we're neighbors here, man. We're 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 neighbors right very here. Tight. Uh, give us a, just a thumbnail sketch of your bio. How did you end up at Avenue Church, Avenue Christian Church?
3: Yeah, I I've grown up here in the Chicagoland suburbs my entire life. My wife Maria also grown up here in the Chicagoland suburbs. So uh, I was in youth ministry for about ten years. I became the youth pastor here at Avenue in 2017, and then at the beginning of 2020, um, I became the senior pastor here at Avenue. So now I've been at the church almost seven years, but I've been the senior pastor for just over four years. And yeah, we love, we love the Chicagoland suburbs and, uh, you know, all of our family's still around. So we're going to be here for a long time.
1: (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. So if I'm, my math is correct there, that feels like you became the senior pastor either right before COVID in the middle of COVID, uh, walk us through that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I became a senior pastor in January of 2020. So oh, I had about two two months of being a senior pastor before uh before COVID hit. I think the the benefit was I'd been here at the church for two and a half years, so I still had a lot of relationships with people. Yeah. Um but yeah, the the difficulty was I was following a lead pastor who had been here for 20 plus years. And, um, I was also the young guy, you know, I was 31 years old. I was the youngest person on our staff. And now I was leading our church and our staff remotely and online. And it was, it was a, it was a crazy season for sure.
1: (laughs) Well, all of us pastors, like it was a growing time. It was a (laughs) time, a time, not our churches didn't grow, but it was a time of growth for us. So. I I forgot that you were the youth pastor there. Um, It's actually not very common that people go from being the youth pastor to the senior pastor of the same church. A lot of times, youth guys uh, and girls, they they go, okay, I want to become, I want to not be, and so we move churches. What was the, what did you enjoy about that? And I'm sure part of it was hard. Part of what you touched on there, they saw you as the youth pastor, the young guy. So I'd love to hear what that process was like.
3: Yeah, we had found out, you know, six months prior that our senior pastor was leaving to go um, back to his wife's hometown in Indiana, mm-hmm. and so in that interim season, you know, my wife and I just really began to pray, um, Lord, is this the next step that you have for us? I'd always wanted to be a senior pastor. I had gone to get my MDiv early on in my youth ministry career in preparation someday. Um, I just didn't think that would happen at age thirty and thirty one but maybe like forty and forty one and so we yeah. began to pray and wrestle through it and um you know let our elders and the search team know hey we're gonna i 'm gonna throw my hat in the the process and let you guys make the decision um but in the midst of that interim time, everyone had to kind of pick up the slack and take on some more responsibilities and I think it was really in that season that the church uh, affirmed a lot of those uh giftings of teaching and shepherding and leading in various capacities. And so, um, it was, it was great in that regard to have that overwhelming support from the, the congregation. Um, but yeah, at the same time, there, there was a learning curve for me Mm -hmm. in so many regards and, uh, I would say COVID expedited that learning process. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, conflict resolution. I learned a lot of those skills very, very quickly. uh, How to communicate clearly and over communicate. Had to learn a lot of those things very, very quickly and learn those lessons sometimes uh, the hard way. Um, yeah. And so, but ultimately, I think it was a it was a good transition for where we were at. You're right. It Doesn't happen a lot for youth pastors to go right into that senior pastor position at the yep. same church, but I'm grateful for the relationships that I had here that helped make that transition as smooth as it could have been despite the worldwide circumstances.
1: Yes, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, uh, we're having you on at, at a good time that I was, you know, I would like to say we planned this. I was somewhat unaware. You just had a book come out. So, yep. as if you don't have enough going on with little kids and, uh, you know, being a young pastor and this or that, uh, tell us about the book and why you wrote the book.
3: Yeah, so the book is called Refined by the Fired, uh, How to Process Pain, Regain Purpose, and Persevere After Being Fired from Your Church. Um, and so before I came to Avenue in 2017, I was at a church in which I was uh, let go from my position as a youth pastor. And it came as a surprise to me. And mm. um, for me, in that first weekend of processing like this new reality that I was in, and, and my kids were, you know, two and six months old. Oh my um, gosh! We were in a very different different season. Not sure what's going to be next. And I began to like look online for help and resources, and there really wasn't anything out there. Mm. Um, and so I went and called my youth pastor, who ten years prior had gone through something very similar, mm. and uh, he just really challenged me to. Focus on how God was going to strengthen my faith, how I mm. could be like Jesus in this situation, how he really wanted, as it says in First Peter, to refine our faith that's you know purer than gold. And so I took that to heart and I began to process all these things and reading, praying, writing down scripture, whatever it was, thinking through all the interactions and conversations I was having, and I realized this this not only needs to be something for me in my journal, I need to be able to share this and help other people. Mm. And like within a year, I had 50,000 words on a Microsoft Word document. And I was like, I, I don't know how this came out of me, but it just did. And over the course of these last you know, five, six years, I've been on a journey of just refining that, talking with people, getting encouragement, feedback, and then going through the process of submitting a book proposal, submitting a manuscript,
1: yeah. and then yeah.
3: having the manuscript accepted last January and then going through the editing process and all of that. And so it's it's been like a six, seven year personal reflection as yeah. well as like personal application of how I really work through all the emotions, all the feelings of being let go from my ministry position.
1: Yeah. How does that affect how you now you lead? You lead staff, you lead... Uh, hopefully you don't have to let anyone go but it's part of the job it comes like how is how is what you went through cuz it sounds like you were blindsided a little surprised and all of that how does that changed or shaped how you now lead a staff
3: yeah i think it's grown in me a greater level of empathy and care mm-hmm. for people i really try to put myself in other people's shoes, you know, it reminds me of Jesus and, you know, uh, Philippians too. Like he, he, he takes off in order to, to be man and be with yeah. us. And it's like, okay, well how do I do that in a small way as the senior pastor to be with the people that I'm leading understand where they're coming from. Um, so that really has grown my empathy. And then just really as the, the staff or the person who oversees staff, trying to prioritize shepherding, caring for my staff. First and Mm. foremost, many times we can get caught up, um, and just, Hey, we got things to do. We got people to reach out to. We got ministries to run. And I, I can become more of a manager than a shepherd. And I think there needs to be more of a healthy balance in our position. Um, not that we don't need to manage people and have expectations and goals, but I can care better for my staff when I give Clear expectations, and I give them clarity, and I help them with their goals, and I, and caring about their personal lives and what's going on, and praying for them, and so having just a better balance of shepherding as well as managing, good. Um, as well as just empathizing, I think those things have really helped me uh, over these last several years to be oh, where that's I'm at today.
1: Again, I, the book is called "Refined by the Fired." I like that title; that's really good. Yeah. Uh, let's end this way. We'd love to ask pastors this question. Um, what makes you hopeful for the church? What makes you? There's a lot discouraging out there, right? You get on Twitter and stuff, and you just leave angry and all this stuff. But what makes you encouraged about the future of the Big C Church?
3: Yeah, I would say from where I'm at as a 35 year old millennial, so I can kind of now <laughs> look ahead to some of the older generations and their faithfulness to the Big C Church for years and years and years. Um, and I think there's a there's a great Um, encouragement for me to see how they continue to be faithful. They continue to stand Mm -hmm. in God's truth. And I think that's going to be vital uh, for these up and coming generations, my generation, Gen Z, even Gen Alpha, that they're able to look to um, older generations and see their faithfulness and see um, their pursuit of Christ in the midst of the craziness in this world. And um, so I think that that's a cool aspect. And the other hope Mm -hmm. I have is that, You know, a lot of statistics would show that this up and coming generation is very spiritually open. So their hearts are soft to spiritual truth. Their hearts are soft to the, not necessarily the things of this world, but the things above the world, the things in the heavenlies. And so we have a prime Mm. opportunity to show them why their hearts are craving those things. because they were created to be in relationship with jesus christ their hearts crave the good news of the gospel message and so because of that their heart posture and because of the faithfulness of those that have gone before us I'm i'm hopeful and excited for the work that god is doing in the local church as well as in the big c church
1: absolutely kyle isabelli uh lead pastor over at avenue christian church in clarendon hills we would be remiss if we didn't ask people want to cook up with your church they live in Clarendon Hills or the area and are looking for a church where can they find you guys
3: yeah you can find us on our website avenuechristian.com um avenuechristian.com
1: there you go thanks Kyle it's good to see you bud
3: thanks Brian appreciate the co- time today
1: one of the things we do on this show is we like to highlight just good stuff going on in the Christian world in the Chicagoland area And with that in mind, I'm thrilled to bring on the assistant athletic director, assistant football coach, head baseball coach at my kid's school, Wheaton Academy. Uh, His name is Justin Swider. Justin, how are you doing today, bud?
4: Good, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. This is going to be some fun.
1: Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Like I said, my kids are at Wheaton Academy, and any chance I get to highlight the school and do stuff like that, I'm excited to do so. But before we do that, Briefly, tell us your story. How did you get to where you are in the role that you're currently in?
4: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's it's totally the Lord just kind of going before um, family stuff. And so um, I grew up uh, in the Wheaton in Wheaton, Illinois. My dad was the head football coach at Wheaton College for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, he is actually currently. Uh, my defensive assistant uh, as he <laughs> retired from Wheaton football and now coaches here at Wheaton Academy and then is my uh, baseball assistant coach as well. Um, but he was the head coach there for a long time till 2019. So I grew up around sports, athletics. Uh, my grandfather was a uh, high school PE teacher and a coach. So similar to what I'm doing. And yeah. um, so I just, I always say coaching's in the blood and um, it's it's kinda of always what I say I meant to, was meant to do. I had some other thoughts on what mm-hmm. I wanted to do. Um and then uh my senior year at Wheaton College, Brad Thornton, who's the who's the principal here at Wheaton Academy, um, he played football for my dad and was like, Hey, just, and he was the head football coach at the time. And he was like, Hey Justin, would you wanna come come over and coach and just kind of be the uh, permanent substitute and just get in the building? Oh, cool. and, um and so I was like, Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um and so I was uh assistant football coach, assistant wrestling coach, assistant baseball coach at the time, no longer uh technically on staff of the wrestling anymore, but um just getting in the building, getting around kids and young men and um wasn't around in the classroom quite yet, so just usually around the boys. Um, but now that I'm teaching, um uh get to work with young ladies as well. It's just an yeah. absolute blast. But I kinda by the next some things happen at Wheaton Academy and um By the next year, I was the assistant uh, athletic director. (laughs) And then um, I was teaching in the PE department um, in the strength and conditioning. And now I've moved uh, into health class as well. And then, excuse me. And then um, since then, uh, I've become the defensive coordinator on the football team. And then um, I think this is my sixth year as the baseball coach. Um, we had one year of COVID, so it's it counts, but I don't have a, yes. a record <laughs> associated. but, uh, but yeah, now I, this is six year of baseball and it's just an absolute blast. And I, uh, yeah, finishing year 10 this year, which is crazy. That's too,
1: awesome. Crazy. But, yeah. Hey man, we're lovely. all, we're, we're getting older, faster. And speaking yeah. of those girls, you've got my daughter. So there you go. Yep. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about Wheaton Academy as a whole, like, sure. oh, and then I want to dive into the athletic department. Yeah. Uh, when I was thinking of sending my kids there, you were nice enough to let me come sit in your office. And, yep. and I just said, my wife and I never wanted to put our kids in Wheaton Academy to take them out of the public school. Like we, You know, you could send your kid to private school out of fear. We wanted to do it if it was going to be a benefit to our yep. kids, and I think that makes sense. Talk to people out there about the benefit of Wheaton Academy versus yeah. like i got to protect them from the public schools
4: yeah, I, I think there's a lot uh a lot of conversations that can be had different perspectives and, per, and points of view and stuff so um, i I'm, I'm, I'd say I'm unique. Um, where I actually went to public school growing up and then mm-hmm. went to private school, Wheaton College um, for college. And now I currently work in the in the private school industry. So um, I kind of got a lot going on. That yes. stuff. But um, I also a lot of what again, I talk about my dad a little bit again. Um, a lot of who I am is because of him and what the impact that he had and how he coached and, and mentored the young men at Wheaton College. Uh, but I would always hear him on his recruiting calls, and um, I would say Wheaton Academy is no different um, than when he was recruiting for Wheaton College Football is he would talk about, like, where his question was, who do you want your son um, to be? Now, again, Wheaton mm. Academy would say who do you mm. want your son or daughter to be? And he would talk about um, it's the people that you're going to be around. Um, yeah. Again, your son or daughter is going to be coming to Wheaton Academy for seven, eight, nine hours, even longer depending on the activities and stuff.
2: <laughs> after yeah.
4: Like who do you want your who do you want them to be um in four years, ten years, or whatever? It's gonna be start it's gonna start now and those people are gonna shape them. I also got teachers and and coaches and um again, I, I'm one of those and, and I know the people mm-hmm. that I work with and they're um they love what they do and uh whether it's teaching math or English or coaching football, yeah. whatever it is, uh, the fine arts department. But what I always say is they as much as they are concerned about how their grades or the performances or the athletics they're more concerned with who their the the young men and women are in the school who their heart what their heart is like and who That's they right. will be and so when going back to that question who do you want your son or daughter to be those teachers are influencing them and impacting them for a significant part of the day sometimes even more than half the day and That's so right. um i think back to my dad's questions when he asked those those families and it's the same thing here at wheaton academy it's it's not better or worse in the sense of like every family is mm-hmm. going to be different, but like this is a great place to be able to ha- have have your children impacted for good and for the kingdom. Absolutely. Um, and so that, again, that's that's why I do what I do and why I love being at this place.
1: That's great. That's great. Yeah, we've found it to be that as well for our family. It's It's been a wonderful experience. All right, let's dive into the athletic world because yeah. that's your world and where Go my kids are spending most of their time at the academy. Um, let me tee you up here a little bit here. Is the goal of Wheaton Academy athletics to win? Is it to, uh, grow men and women to be closer to Jesus or can it be both? Like, uh, what, how do you view that at Wheaton Academy as an athletic director? Um,
4: Absolutely. It'd be both 100%. And I think, um, if Jesus was on this, uh, this, uh, call right now with us, I'd say (laughs) he would want us to, uh, win as many games as possible and yeah. uh, or be as competitive as possible. And uh, Again, another thing I heard growing up is um, from my dad, he's like when he's coaching football players, like, hey, we're going to go kick him in the teeth and then we're going to help him up. Like, we're going to play yeah. as hard as we can <laughs> yes. and yes. then we're going to pick him up. And I tell my guys, now I add to, I say, hey, pick him up and tell him Jesus loves him. And then we'll go back, <laughs> go back to the huddle or whatever. Um, but no, I 100% agree. You can say you can do both. Um, and it should yeah. be both. Um, we've been, one thing that I stress is we've been given – gifts and abilities, again, whether it's on the, I'm talking athletics, but whether it's in the classroom on the, on the Mm -hmm. performance stage, whatever it is, but especially athletics, uh, we've been given gifts and abilities and we are called to be good stewards of the things that we have. Um, And whether that's just our bodies, whether that's our skills. um, And so I don't think that if, if we don't pursue excellence on the field, on the court, whatever it is, I don't think we're being a good steward of what we've been given. So like, your, your son getting ready for baseball season, right? He's busting his tail um, to work on a swing, his throwing, mm-hmm. his body, all that kind of stuff. He's being a good steward and honing the skills and trying to en- enhance those skills. In turn, right, you're going to see results. Again, you're not always going to see benefits right away. You're not going to see the results. Right? right. It might come here at Wheaton Academy. It might come when he's in college, wherever it might be. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Hopefully he will see those results. But he's trying to better himself in hopes that um, – he can, is being a good steward of what God has given him. If he doesn't do that, I don't think he's bit, He would be considered have, being a good steward of those things. And so by doing that, we're innately going to pursue excellence on the field. And, and I hope like it from his competitiveness too. just again, you're like your son, but just anybody, you start doing those things, those competitive juices start to flow and you want to win. And yeah. I think it, you, by being a good steward and training and, um, and just pursuing excellence in your craft, um, you're going to win, but you can do that and give God the glory. I think the issue comes when, um, it becomes all about me, 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 or, um, the competitiveness turns into trash talking or all the extra, yeah, glory, yeah. that kind of stuff. But if you're pursuing excellence, you can, um, the wins that's great. But then also like, it's going to turn right back to God and you know, we're doing it for his glory. We're doing it to be, um, uh, to give him the name. And I think that like when people see, um, hopefully when they see Wheaton Academy they say, Hey man, that's a great baseball team, but they mm-hmm. also act in the appropriate way. They treat others with respect. Um, I see them praying after the games or whatever yeah. it might be. They can say, Hey, yeah. you're pursuing excellence on the field, but also excellence in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And those two things go, go hand in hand. Um, a great example. Another one would be after our football game, we played St. Lawrence this year and, mm-hmm. uh, he said, "I've one of the guys that was doing security out of our next to our locker room um, was talking. It said the coach Johanneker, head football coach. He said, i 'I've seen a lot of teams walk out of that locker room um, and compete hard on the field, but I've never seen a team compete as hard as you did, and also have the class um, and the respect from the other team that that, that you guys had.' So, yeah, uh, just a, just another example of what we're trying to do here at Wheat Academy.
1: That's awesome. That's yeah. I mean, for my wife and I." Drop Jackson at his first football practice. He didn't know anybody. We'd never been there. And to come pick him up at the end and to be like, all right, are they almost done? And then they're praying. And I'm like, oh, keep them, keep them, keep doing that. Uh, was really cool. This is awesome, man. Where can people, uh, if we whet their appetite a little bit and they want to check yeah. out Wheaton Academy, where can people check out, whether it be the athletics or the fine arts yeah. or whatever else it could be?
4: Yeah, if uh, just WheatonAcademy.org is our website. Um, mm-hmm. Athletics.WheatonAcademy.org um, would be our athletics website uh specifically Um uh, but yeah just athletic uh, or you can find everything you need to uh for that and um yeah there's a whole bunch of good stuff and yeah we'd if uh one thing i'll say is if you're looking for uh to have your son or daughter pushed in the relationship with jesus christ um pushed in academics um, yes. And then again, pursuing excellence on the on the field or wherever, whatever uh, club or activity they're in, um, you're not going to find a, a place that, in my opinion, that does it does it any better. Um, again, not saying that makes us uh, a better place, again, a, a yep. better fit for you. You got to find out what you want and um, if those things are important to you. But um, hopefully you can hear my voice, uh, the passion for this place and the excitement for what I do. And um, again, it's a joy to be able to awesome. come to work every day and work with these young men and women.
1: That's awesome. Again, Justin Swider is the assistant athletic director, assistant football coach, head baseball coach, all sorts of other caps. Uh, We do need to put you on the spot. Five seconds. Who wins the Super Bowl this weekend? Who wins Super Bowl?
4: Uh, Who wins Super Bowl? I'm going to go 49ers. They beat my Packers uh, (laughs) and my brother's also a Niners fan. So I'm going to go Niners. Um, I like a good underdog with Brock Purdy. So
1: there you go. There you go. Hey, Justin, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, man. I appreciate your time.
4: Thanks, Brian. See you later.
1: Join us again tomorrow as we close out the week with a Friday. Going to head into the weekend, Super Bowl weekend. Uh, But join us tomorrow from 4 until 6. Until then, we hope that you have a wonderful uh, rest of your Thursday evening. My name is Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Comet Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life.